Welcome everybody to the Legal Tech Week live roundtable of journalists and bloggers for July 29th, 2022, where we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation uh, and uh, lots to talk about today because we weren't here last week and lots happened since then. Uh, I am Bob Ambrogi. I have the blog Law Sites, the podcast Law Next, and the world famous Law Next legal technology directory that Gene does not write for. Uh, and uh, <laughs> but but Jean, uh, you write for something. Oh, sorry. Yes, um, I'm Jean O'Grady. I uh, write the uh, Dewey B Strategic Blog, which covers research, information, knowledge management, workflow, and anything else I'm interested in, and also legal tech hub. That's all. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal covering business of law and technology. And Nikki. Well, I am Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case, law practice management software. Uh, I write legal technology columns for the ABA Journal above the law, uh, the New York Daily Record. I think it's actually called the Rochester Daily Record now. And um, I also sometimes write for the My Case blog and I also create some industry reports and benchmark reports for my case as well. And uh, happy to that we're back together this week. Yeah, where's where's your lovely porch view? Looking out over. Um, the I, I'm sitting inside right now because I had a meeting right before this and I didn't have time to really switch into like Friday afternoon mode, so I'm inside. <laughs> I was hoping we'd see the butterfly again. <laughs> the, the, the attack butterfly that thing's brutal <laughs> yeah and well steve introduce yourself sure steve Embry. um i write the blog tech law crossroads which is generally about all the things that jean's blog is about only she does it much better but i'm happy to be back and uh went to double a and as far as i know did not get covid but did catch a cold <laughs> that happens. Go figure. that still happens too <laughs> joe patrice yeah, Joe Patrice uh, from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer uh, podcast. I am, uh, you know, glad to be back. I did not get to go to AAL next year. Hopefully I'll pull that one off. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, rested and ready to talk about some legal tech. <laughs> Good. And last but not least, Zach Warren. Hey there, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm currently the editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. Also see me on law.com and some other ALM brands as I'm getting a few cocktails because that's only the case for the next week. But yeah, currently the editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. Yes, it's true. We've, we've driven Zach away. He's going to... Uh... <laughs> He's, he's leaving uh, he's leaving his position and therefore leaving this panel. But you will be here next week, right? I will be here next week. Yeah, mm -hmm. my final day at ALM and like one of my final couple hours at ALM, I will spend with y'all and probably have a drink in my hands. Well, how else How else would you want to spend your final couple of hours at ALM? <laughs> yeah, hey, it works by me. So I think it's going to be mandatory uh, that everybody in the uh, audience and the panel brings... Uh, has a glass of champagne at the handy next week so we can toast Zach off on his new venture. And will you be able to tell us next week what that new venture is? Are you still? Uh... Uh, yeah, prob probably. Um, <laughs> it, it's not a huge secret, but for ALM's sake, yeah, I'll, I'll wait till next week. Sounds good. All right. 
Well, as several people said, uh, a bunch of us, several, four of us, to be exact, were at uh, the first uh, in-person annual conference of the American Association of Law Libraries since COVID hit. That was uh, in Denver last week. Uh, Zach was there, Steve was there, Gene, of course, was there, and I was there. We missed uh, Joe and Victor and, and Nikki, but... Um, I know both Zach and Steve have, have written about their impressions of it. I, I've written a couple of articles that came out of it, but I haven't actually written up my impressions. I don't know if you did either, Gene. Did you write I your didn't, impressions? I didn't. No. I guess I, I, it didn't occur to me until I saw the, saw the other articles. And I thought, that's a good idea. I should have done that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I just haven't had time. It's like uh, it's, the news keeps happening even after you get back. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what what did what did people think? What what were your takeaway? Well, I think Steve. Uh, who was it who said COVID was the big presenter? At <laughs> that was like that was like the dark cloud over everything. And as as it went on, you saw more and more masks and more and more people dropping out. Although I think everybody was happy to be there. And it's funny. I was talking to a vendor this morning, and he said they had the best attendance or they had more traffic and more lot, great leads from this conference than, than any before the pandemic. So at least one vendor came away really, really happy. Yeah, I, I touched a little bit about the COVID stuff in my takeaways article. I mean, it you could definitely tell that it was kind of a pervasive theme because to the credit of people there, there were a ton of people in masks, um, which including the speakers a lot of times, which I think I, I wrote in my piece may come from the fact that it was more of a law school educational crowd that made take that stuff a little bit more seriously. But I think it was four of the five panels that I was in had a last minute call out, which of course they didn't say what the call out was for, but you could kind of read between the lines. Um, all in all though, I thought it was a great show. Um, it, the panels that I sat in on were extremely interesting. I had got a ton of story ideas out of them and it's perspective that you don't necessarily get at a lot of trade shows since a lot of the panels tended to be based on academic papers or research that somebody had done or a data project coming out of a law school, which I really appreciated and kind of approaches legal tech from a slightly different way than perhaps I'm used to. Yeah, I uh, I thought one of the great quotes that I just stumbled upon was was from Greg Lambert. I bumped into him on the exhibit floor after the, the keynote, and we were talking about and uh, the difference, sort of the, the different mindset of people that attend AAAL. And he said, you know, well, most of these people are users and doers of technology, and uh, they they look at things a little bit differently, have different interests, not heavy duty into sales or not heavy duty into into purchasing so much and so it was kind of a refreshing thing although i had a i guess a little bit of the opposite reaction i was surprised at the uh sort of lack of masking uh in the public areas anyway uh on the exhibit floor i saw very few people in masks and certainly at the at the parties it it was um of course, you know, everybody's eating and drinking. It's kind of hard to wear a mask, but it was a, it was a little unnerving for me to, to be in some of those rooms with, you know, hundreds of people, you know, in close proximity. Um, and 
that didn't deter me from going. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it I, was, I, I had not been in that kind of situation uh, for a long time. And it was, it gave me some pause, I guess. Um, that's fair. I, I think I'm grading somewhat on a curve too, because I'm comparing to like a leap a week or a clock or something like that, which mm-hmm. did not have as many as mm-hmm. I think you saw at double A double O. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, was, it, uh, I, I was. It was a great show. I agree with you, Zach. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. A lot of good discussions. A lot of smart people, and uh, you know, it uh, it was it was good. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I thought, I thought the mask thing was kind of strange, only because I, I I myself even kept going back and forth. I, I would like put it on as I walked into the exhibit hall, and then five minutes later, I'm talking to somebody, and I just feel like, or I'm drinking coffee, or you know, it just loses, and then I forget to put it back on. But we know some people got COVID as a result of of the conference because they tweeted about it, and I, I talked to at least one of the vendors who was there who who got COVID there, but it doesn't sound like it was, uh, you know, a major hotspot uh, for for COVID infections. Um, so, sorry, Gina, I, I, got, yeah. I got two alerts when I got home from the Delaware, from the Colorado Department of Health saying I had been with somebody who came down with it, but so far I haven't come down with it. Um, the other thing I was going to say, just in terms of the, uh, what was sort of surprising was the total absence of big launches. And, you know, Thomson Reuters and Walters Kluwer did have a couple of smaller add-on interesting things. Fast Case was showing their citator. Thomson Reuters was just, I mean, I, they they sort of cracked me up. They're like the Sphinx. Like, we don't need to say anything. We're Thomson Reuters. You know, we don't need a launch. We're Thomson Reuters, you know. Yeah. Well, they don't uh, have a PR department anymore either, so. Yeah, well, that's true, too. <laughs> oh, it's exactly I mean, what I was, I, just, I was about to jump in and they, say. Good job. We, right. We don't need to compete. You know, we, we're, we've already arrived. We don't need to compete with new products. Yeah. I mean, if listeners don't know, they've they've laid off much of their... It was a layoff per se, but they've cut back much of their PR one staff. Guy left. Traditionally, yeah, one guy, one, one guy, guy left, left and I right met now. with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, although you know, I was, I, I did notice that that Bloomberg and Walters Kluwer and um, the Thomson Reuters and Lexus Nexus, they had huge floor space. Uh, it seemed bigger than what I remembered, but maybe. You know, maybe it really wasn't, but it, it sure seemed like they were occupying a lot of things and you know, giving away stuff. And, you know, it, it did not seem to me to be as many of the sort of smaller startup kind of sort of start sort of startups that we've seen in the past. But that could just be, a you know, sort of an impression I, no. I could be wrong about that. I, I think. You're right. And I think one of the complaints having been on the AALA board is that getting a booth there is fairly expensive and that is hard. And I, you know, Bob and I think have both talked to AALL about having something like a startup alley where <laughs> there's a way for smaller companies to get in there without paying the full freight. You know, so I do think it is perhaps too much because, you know, I've, I have met lots of vendors startups mostly walking around the halls right. before they can't afford one, which I think is a shame. I, I think mm-hmm. there should be more room or a way for them to 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 be able to 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 exhibit. The other thing I noticed was the complete absence of handouts. Like everyone has gone digital. And I, I think I used to I know it's ridiculous, but I always liked walking away with a brochure and almost nobody had any paper to hand you, you know? Yeah. Which, which which I would then 
pile up on my credenza somewhere and throw away after six months when I never looked at them again. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point, Gene, about a, some kind of startup alley that, you know, they do that at the consumer electronics show every year. Yeah. And it, it is one of the most, it's, it's, it's one of the things I really enjoy going through because it's, I mean, some of it's bizarre. Some of it is yeah. ridiculous. Some of it you think that could work, but it's in this huge basement downstairs and they all have, they're all kind of crammed in there and it's, uh, it is interesting and I'm sure they give them a, a discount to, to be in there. Um, yeah. But again, it's one of the more interesting things to go to. I think. Yeah. The, the thing that came closest is, you know, they have those two cool cool tools cafe which tends to be mostly academics but they show off these really niche little products you know like how to do how to do videos and i don't know a lot of it's geared towards training and time management i thought there were some fun things i saw in those cool tool sessions yeah uh, and I mean, there were some announcements that came out of there. I, I don't know, you know, none of them were maybe uh, spectacular, but I know I think all three of you, Zach, Steve, and, and Gene, wrote uh, about about bits and pieces of them. I, I mean, there, there was the Lexus uh, yeah. announcement, and uh, uh, Volters Kluwer had. I think I forget which of you said it was kind of a. Some, some smaller news, uh, but some interesting stuff that, that they announced mm -hmm. there. But, but yeah, not like the old days of going there. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before with other shows too. It's the, the, the timing of announcements to trade shows seems to be waning. That used to be a thing for legal week. It used to be a thing for tech show, certainly for this show. And now they people are spacing them out more. And I, I, to me, that's smart. I, I think the trouble with timing when, when everybody was announcing their big news at the same show, right. uh, they ended up, uh, you know, losing, losing attention rather than gaining attention because mm -hmm. they're just one of many uh, products in the spotlight. Yeah. I if I can, if I could play devil's advocate to that, though, I'm even thinking just back to the last AA Double L, where Bloomberg Law had their huge release that I know they rented out a whole space for, and they had actual like kiosks there that you could be hands on and play with the tool a little bit. I think there is something yeah, to be speakeasy, said. Speakeasy, no less. I love. Yeah, it. the speakeasy. <laughs> I, what city was that? That was that was DC. in DC. Yeah, DC. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm I a stranger to that. <laughs> Fair. Um, I do think there's something to be said, though, of if you're going to be releasing something, and especially if you want people to be hands-on, if you want a large number of people in one place to be able to give demos, doing it at a conference is just an easy way to get a bunch of faces in front of your product. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, of, of those product announcements that were made there, and any, anything uh, jump out at people as particularly interesting? Well, you know, I wrote about the Lexus fact uh, fact identifier, you know, the, like one more technology that helps associates not read, you know, which worries me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I understand what they're doing. And, uh, and of course, they claim that it was completely unique, but I actually think it had some similarities to what is it? The case text compose. I think case text does that kind of precision fact fact related uh, precedent searching. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a good product, but I always worry as somebody who has to teach associates how to do research, I, I'm always afraid they're going to forget they actually have to go and read the cases themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I wrote a little bit on the, on the Lexus Nexus thing too, which was not a, I didn't, I didn't get the sense it was a huge 
new deal. It was kind of a refinement of some of the things that they got, but they, they seem to be sort of committed to, to trying to make their products easy for people to use and not clunky like a lot of the legal tech was over the years. So it's a noble effort. I don't know if they will succeed. The other thing I thought was interesting is they told me that uh, they have basically given up trying to teach lawyers how to have good workflows and processes. And so their, their, their goal now is to automate that so that they, the lawyers don't have to do it because after all, they're all special snowflakes and think the way they do work is the only way, which, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if LexisNexis has succeeded with that, but I think they're right. I mean, after years and years and years of trying to get lawyers to, to, to use good workflows that make sense, uh, I don't think they're ever going to ever going to succeed. So, you know, <laughs> throw in the towel and forget it. <laughs> yeah, I, I met with LexisNexis, but was actually more interested in talking to them about that, that decisive legal research service that I, I we've talked about before on this show, but they had launched kind of stealthily launched this uh, legal research service or, or uh, their, their parent company uh, uh, had stealthily launched this legal research service. And at the time I first wrote about it, um, Jeff Pfeiffer, who's, Alexis, uh, uh, um, chief product officer uh, at Lexus, uh, didn't get back to me, and it turns out he was on vacation. It it wasn't like he was avoiding me, but I finally got a chance to sit down with Jeff and talk about it. And you know, they kind of said, "Well, we weren't really trying to be stealthy about it. It's just that we just really wanted to draw a clear distinction between a LexisNexis legal research product and this Decisis legal re research product, which is." You know, not as not as robust, uh, and and we don't want to make anybody think it's as robust as the LexisNexis research product. Uh, but I mean, he did certainly confirm that they are really going after the the fast case market effectively yes. uh, here with this. I mean, this is this is this is to compete against fast case for bar association businesses. That's uh, business big and, news. Yeah. yeah, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's I think it's really yeah. fascinating. I uh, think the big news is that fast case has become such a threat that right. they're finding specific products to go after bar by bar. The bars that they all 50, is it more than 50? The bars that they have under yeah. their way. Yeah, because they have state and local and territory, Virgin Islands territory. Um, so yeah, but it, but fast case, you know, acquired case maker was they were always sort of going competing against each other. And then last year or two years ago, I guess it was now fast case acquired case maker and pretty much sewed up the entire bar market for itself. And uh, Pfeiffer said that LexisNexis or, or RELX had been thinking about this before, uh, had been working on this before the uh, face maker, face, face maker, <laughs> fast case. <laughs> Uh, case maker uh, acquisition, but who knows? Uh, anyway, that was interesting. Um, all right, well, maybe we ought to uh, let our other panelists <laughs> who have been sitting here patiently uh, talk as we talk about something that they weren't at uh, uh, weigh in. Uh, and uh, who wants to go first? Joe, Joe you want to? Uh, you've been very quiet so far. Yeah, I mean, Sure. So this one's actually a story that that uh, I think I know, Bob, you've written about it. Uh, I don't know if others people got in it, too. So the Wall Street Journal is having a really bad month uh, because they've been they've been getting taken to task a lot. Uh, and now they might get sued for defamation because they put out a story uh, talking about Elon Musk having an affair with 
Sergey Brin's wife, uh, and the you know the lawyers say that's not true, and we are taking the position that this is defamatory. Uh, so you know, fun times over there. Uh, but the angle for that is, and I didn't even realize this until Bob, you said it. Uh, this has a legal tech angle because the woman at the center of all this is an old legal tech CEO. A former one, not very old. Yeah. He's only about I, I, 30. Good point. By old, I mean former. <laughs> former, that, that version of old. Yeah, no, uh, which I feel like all of us, maybe there's not a lot of tech to this story, but I feel like if any of the people on this call are like me, you enter enter your life with people who are not in legal tech and you say something about cool things happening in legal tech and they roll their eyes at you and laugh at you. And it's like, no, no, legal tech is in the in the real news now. Like now I we get to feel cool for a while because we know a little bit of something about a real news story. I'm right. I, it's exciting for us. It's every so often you cross the chasm right from uh, from just this insular legal tech world into, into the, the broader universe. And it feels like you're going through some kind of a space time warp or something when, when it happens. But yeah, yeah she had been the uh, founder of a company called Clear Access IP, which was a, a kind of a patent management uh, platform uh and uh she had raised some money in that and she'd gotten acquired but she's also a, a codex fellow and i think she's still a codex fellow uh and uh i had actually included her in a, a post i did back in 2017 on the the women of legal tech uh yeah. and, and so uh that's, that was kind of interesting i kept so reading but, it's so funny but, i kept reading the news and i kept thinking that name sounds so familiar and then i finally <laughs> searched my own site i'm like oh wow <laughs> <laughs> so buck up, everybody. All of you in legal tech, you too can someday sue the U the Wall Street Journal for defamation, I'm sure, if you just stick with it long enough. <laughs> the badge of uh, legal tech success, or at least, yeah, at least get into a, a, some kind of a fisticuffs with, uh, with uh, Elon Musk. Um, yeah. In my, in my write-up, I had to clarify for, you know, because I write for mostly a legal audience, but occasionally non-legal folks, that the defamation here is the allegation that she was cheating on her husband and that that's what harms her reputation, not that she would have had sex with Elon Musk, which while that may be defamation per well, they're se. Both kind of, they're both uh, kind of related. You know. <laughs> yeah, like the actual, the, the actionable harm is probably allegations of cheating, not that it was Elon, but I mean, I don't know. Are we sure that those aren't grounds? We'll see. Well, and notably, not only has Elon Musk and Nicole Shanahan now denied that there was ever any affair, but Musk had to go on to tweet the fact that, in fact, he hasn't even had sex in a long time, <laughs> which we didn't, we didn't need him to share. <laughs> right. <laughs> Somebody really just needs to take his Twitter account away from him for even like a week. I think it would do everybody some good, most of all him. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe he wouldn't be facing a multi-billion-dollar lawsuit right now from Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If only he had. Well, um, all right. So, uh, well, Victor, how about you? You've also uh, sat here patiently while we've been talking about other stuff. What do you What do you got this week? Oh, um, yeah. It's just um, you know, lately, lately we've been I'm just the journal in general, the ABA journal in general. We've been looking at uh, you know how 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 Dobbs impacts. Um, you know, uh, well, this just everybody going forward, but like, you know, one story that we did a few weeks ago looked at, you know, um, tech providers and what, you know, whether, whether, whether women should be worried about their data being sold or possibly seized to like, you know, um, you know, with, with all these trigger laws going to effect. 
And um, you know, we, we we published a story this week looking at law firms who are you know who have who have gone out of the way to help um, their lawyers or associates or staffers <laughs> made it clear that like they'll pay for their expenses to to go to different states and whatnot to get uh, to get the healthcare that they need. Uh, and so, but this particular story that I posted, um, uh, well, that 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 I that I um, you know put in the queue was just kind of interesting. Like, there's a, there's a proposed bill in South Carolina which would ban the internet from putting up information about abortions in case people wanted to look for it within the state. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just, obviously it's one of those things where, you know, I think, you know, a lot of these bills I think are just trying to make statements or trying to, trying to score, score political points, but it just kind of, it's just kind of underscores just like the uncertainty of like, you know, now that, now that Roe's been overruled and, 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 you know, states have different states have different, have different aims and different, um, you know, uh, you know things that they want to push and whatnot. It just kind of underscores the uncertainty for, um, you know, for for women, even for you know, you know, like for um, you know, people who are just trying to get trying to make certain healthcare decisions for themselves. And 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 it just kind it just kind of like like I thought just it just kind of underscores the uncertainty of all of that and sort of like what people have to be be wary of going forward. So, so I mean, I mean, who knows who knows if this law is even going to go into effect? Um, I think you know they're obviously they're constitutional issues. Obviously they're. Um, you know, um, issues about whether or not they can really, you know, um, stop like out-of-state service providers from, you know, um, um, you know, what what people look at in, 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 within the state from coming from out-of-state. But uh, you know, it's just one of the things that I think just kind of underscores sort of the, the overall uncertainty of of the terrain right now. Isn't that something we're always criticizing China for trying to block websites? I mean. It, it seems like somebody needs, needs training on what the internet does. It's designed to, it's designed to route you around blocks. You know? It's a, it's a series of tubes. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally though, that's what I was about to say is not only does somebody not understand what the internet is supposed to do, but they also don't understand how the internet functions in practice because yeah. like, there are ways around everything with right. VPN and like it's there's going to be information like say on a Walgreens or CVS website yeah. about like reproductive health and stuff like that. So are you banning your local drugstores internet like websites now? It It's just it seems dumb even not taking the politics of it into account just from a pure technology standpoint. Well, I'm not surprised because they don't even understand how women's reproductive systems work. So why would they understand how the internet works? They can't even understand the bodies of the people that are legislating about, you know, they, they think that one of them, there was a video where he said, if a woman swallows a camera, kind of like you have to, for certain medical procedures, won't that just go into a reproductive tract? That wasn't the exact word that he used, but that's what he was thinking. Another one talked about how, um, uh, they, they talk about women can just shut, you know, rape down. Some of the senators have said that they can just stop um, the fertilization from happening. They talk about how um, there's so many things that they don't understand when it comes to women's um, reproductive tracts, and they're legislating against it. So how would they understand? I mean, I how how could they possibly understand a website? Like they're just not operating with a lot of knowledge or uh, curiosity. I'm not really sure, <laughs> but. <laughs> I thought, I mean, I thought the South Carolina law was pretty outrageous, but I, the, uh, was it South Carolina? Yeah, South Carolina. Yeah, but South Carolina. but the, the, the point the article made also is just that so many states are now looking at 
at creating laws around either ensuring access or blocking access to uh, to information. And uh, I, you know, it reminded me of our we talked recently about all the the sort of the sort of patchwork of of state privacy laws that's that's developed over the last few years, and how difficult it is for states to comply with all of those. How difficult it is for businesses to comply with all of those laws, because if you're operating, you know, anywhere other than just within a small geographic region, you basically have to comply with all the laws. Uh, and and this could be like a whole, you know, a whole new uh, nightmare for for businesses if any of these laws actually take effect. Uh, which which of course does open up an opportunities for 650 to develop one of its handy uh, uh, <laughs> creative policy that will comply with every law. They actually just launched one last week on the uh, on the state on the state privacy laws. You know, fill out one set of information and we'll complete every form you need for every state privacy law, which is kind of cool. But uh, anyway, yeah, one, of, it's, it's yeah, one of the articles that we published earlier this week about looking at, um, you know, what law firms are doing and whatnot. I mean, one, one, one person in the story made the point that like, well, you know, it might actually inform like how law firms determine what states to open up in now. Because if they're like, okay, well, you know, well, it, it, it going both ways, right? If they're like, if they're very strongly in favor of, you know, pre preserving access to abortion, you know, women's right to choose and whatnot, they're not going to go to like, they're not going to move, they're not going to open it like Mississippi. And then vice versa, if they're, you know, a very conservative firm that, you know, believes that Dobbs was 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 the right decision and that, and, and that you know, abortion is murder, they're not going to open in like, maybe they won't open in California or New York or Illinois. So, it, 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 I mean, you know, like, like, like they're obviously going to be, well, big, you know, like, like a lot of ramifications and, and obviously, you know, you know, people are going to push for, you know, I, I mean, you know, we know what's going to happen. We know what the next step is, right? I mean, you know, like people are going to push for a national ban. So it'll be interesting to see, to see, to see, to see how it plays out though. Well, and there's so many privacy implications, um, sort of aside from what you mentioned, Bob, but, you know, the one thing that really struck me about the case of that 10-year-old girl who was raped to cross state lines out of Ohio and Indiana to get the abortion, Indiana has pretty restrictive laws on abortion, although they don't restrict them as much as Ohio. And one of their restrictions requires the um, all physicians to report um, any anybody who gets a, an abortion and when it's uh, allegations of um, abuse like that, there's a, even an additional layer of reporting. So basically um, women are, you know, it's like a scarlet A. I mean, they may not right now be required to publicly wear this, but there's issues with that. And then when you think of that slippery slope of trying to prevent people from crossing state lines or trying, you know, you can't actually, uh, I think it was Alito that said, um, you can't prevent people, you know, that's not gonna affect the ability to, Cross state lines and commerce um, constitutionally, yeah. but it can certainly, in reality, make it really difficult for women to cross state lines because they can, you know, have reasonable re reasonable cause under their laws to question you for an hour, forty five minutes, whatever it may be, to determine whether you're crossing state lines for that reason. And that's just like a common sense application right now. When if it gets down to the nitty gritty, like how are you going to prove that that's not why a woman's crossing state lines? Are you going to do ultrasounds at the border? Are you going to do transvaginal ultrasounds? Like, do you want to detect it at like six weeks, at five weeks, at four weeks? Like, how are you going to prove this? Wait, who, who's getting stopped at the border? How, who's where are their barriers? Uh, if you take the slippery state? slope, if you take the slippery slope where they're they're penalizing either physicians or the women or um, people that are assisting the women in crossing state lines to get abortions, some of the laws already incorporate concepts like that. So when so, you take it, this slippery slope, where how are you actually going to enforce that? Well, I, I, I'll just 
I'll jump in and, and just like for an example, uh, when the when various states legalized recreational marijuana, state neighboring states that kept it illegal were like blanket stopping people coming into the state with foreign plates. That sort of thing hasn't started oh. yet, but is that was certainly like New York, New York and New Jersey alcohol laws when I was a teenager. <laughs> right. <laughs> I did. Everyone read, went across the came across the bridge to New York. I get it. <laughs> I did read about a case, a sort of a bizarre set of facts, but it was a woman who was um from somewhere in Europe who had a work. No, Australia. And for some reason, it was, was Australia and was crossing. And she was coming Canada. to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And she got. And she stopped in in L.A. and asked about uh, a bunch of abortion questions and then sent back. Right. And oh, you know, so that I mean, that was just a really strange situation because none of it made a lot of sense in terms of why they had any interest in that at all at that particular border. But I mean, I think you're going to see more and more of that. So even if they're not actually preventing you in terms of, from a constitutional sense, they're effectively preventing you because it, you know, that gets, and if you take that to its extreme, you end up with like women stuck in their houses in Afghanistan, not able to drive without a man with them. Like, you know, this is a slippery slope and it, I don't like where it's headed. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. But technically those ACL, women do, ACLU dues right now. Technically, that woman, while while she was questioned about whether she was trying to get an abortion, which was wild, uh, the actual reason they flipped her back is that her deal was she was trying to go to Canada to house sit. Uh, it was basically a vacation, and she would house sit, and that was that was her pay. And we technically have some sort of provision that says we don't let people get visas who are going to places to work without pay, like that kind of house sit for for uh is your only recompense which that makes some sense i mean you could see people being exploited pretty easily that way but that was the real reason she got sent back but yeah she got questioned a lot about abortion which was kind of terrifying all right well uh nikki what would you like to uh chat about this week chat bots that was a, a lovely transition there. Nice segue. Um, I wrote an article um, for the ABA Journal. And just by way of background, if you're not familiar with my articles, I write a weekly column um, that is about uh, different types of software, um, the who, what, when, why of the software, basically. And um, I this month I wrote about uh, chatbots and um, online chat basically oops all right <laughs> same time um so i uh, wrote about chatbots for the aba journal and also just online chat tools for lawyers uh and what i thought was particularly interesting was when i covered this a little over two two and a half years ago uh there were not very many that were legal specific and now there are increasingly legal specific options um as, that essentially make it possible for clients to get information or provide information through some sort of chat functionality on a law firm's website. And uh, there's a significant number of standalone products now that are specifically for lawyers. And then some virtual receptionist service services are also starting to include that as a feature or a tool that they'll offer as part of their subscription fee. So um, I, I thought it was just really interesting. And it was just one more sign of the times in terms of how the pandemic and touchless interaction uh, has sort of affected sort of the speeding up and uh, provision of certain types of functionalities. And that was one of them. And so uh, it was interesting to kind of uh, 
dive in and see how much it had changed. And it was just sort of one more little piece of the puzzle in terms of what the pan, how the pandemic's going to affect things on the other side of this, if, if we ever get there, you know, fingers crossed. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. It was a good, it was a good roundup of them. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, it, it's become, it's becoming one of those sort of critical tools for law firms, because especially, especially for certain kinds of practices. I mean, you know, if you've got a personal injury practice or something where you're getting, doing a lot of intake, a lot of calls coming in, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, pe people don't necessarily want to have to wait to talk to a human or people may want to call in at, at you know, 11 o'clock at night or, or two o'clock in the morning or, or whatever else it is. And uh, chatbots can be really useful in collecting information. Um, there's another new one I don't see, on, I don't think it's on your list, but uh, I, I'm gonna write about it next week, I think that, so stay tuned for that. It's got some interesting features to it that, that takes it a little bit a little bit farther even, but uh, but uh, it's a good piece. Yeah, and I, I think- I missed that one. I thought I did a pretty good- It's brand new, it's brand new. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> No, I was just going to say, too, getting back to the point, I feel like we talk about a lot how the point of legal tech in the first place is kind of to go after that low-hanging fruit, the pain points that all attorneys have. And I mean, what is more painful, especially for solo and small firms, than intake? Like, the entire intake process is just kind of hell. And when I talk to a lot of people, it's, yeah, like, and just give me anything to cut down on that workflow. So something like a chat bot that even if it cuts their time by 25%, I think it's something that a lot of people would be, see a reason to jump on board with. Also, I think psychologically, though, when people when people reach out for, for legal help, I mean, they're not necessarily thinking, oh, well, you know, I have an issue that I want to talk about at like midnight, but it's okay. I'll wait till 9 a.m. for or 10 a.m. for this person to get back to me. I mean, they want, they want, you know, like that's the most important thing in the world to them. They want, you know, instant, if not instant help, at least just just to know that like some that that there be that that you know some help is on the way or that they're being considered or you know that that that, that there's something in place to kind of help them out with their problem immediately. So I think just having a chatbot just in any in any kind of especially for, especially for lawyers like I mean it's it's getting to become become a necessity because I mean if you don't if you're not going to answer your phone four seven or you know or or, or have like a receptionist or who can do that then you need something there to, to kind of make sure that you're, you're not you're not missing any potential leads yeah and just to clarify i had essentially just covered standalone <clears throat> chatbots um there are some where they're incorporated into services that are provided by certain companies but i just was focusing on this standalone and the chatbots were two different types one was a chatbot where there's actually a person on the other side responding um possibly staffed by a virtual, virtual receptionist service. And then the others were AI chatbots that um, I think are the more typical ones we um, often encounter on the vast majority of websites where you have you know, AI, uh, an AI tool on the backdrop, some na natural language processing, answering the most typical questions or providing them uh, links to the typical um, things they're trying to speak or else accepting information for intake purposes. So. There's a, it was interesting to see how many more AI-based chatbots were starting to pop up though, specifically for legal. Yep, yep. Well, um, let's see. Uh, Zach, uh, you've got another story you want to talk about this week. 
Uh, yeah, sure. So my story is another big fundraising round for a legal tech company, this one being Xtero, who in the past, uh, has, they're always a little vague with their funding rounds. Last time they said it was more than 100 million, not saying the exact number. This time they say it's valued us at more than a billion. Well, not saying the exact number, but still valued at more than a billion. It means it's something substantial. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting for two reasons, one being them telling us pretty explicitly, yeah, we're doing this last fundraising round and then IPO is next. So another legal tech company that's looking for the IPO route, um, particularly interesting on the heels of some legal tech IPOs like Disco, their price going a little bit down. So it's curious that people are still looking that route, but also kind of along that vein, how Xtero is repositioning itself because it's long been known as an e-discovery company. And both in this fundraising round and in my conversations with them over the past year or so, they've been starting to pivot to say, no, we're not e-discovery. We are data risk management. We're GRC. We're something a little bit different that almost puts them as a competitor with like a Mitra tech versus other e-discovery companies. Um, so why, I mean, we've talked about before how e-discovery it's not necessarily a tapped market but if you're a big law firm you probably have your preferred e-discovery tool at this point so they're going for a different market more of a corporate market to say hey we're not only a discovery provider but we can do all this other data risk stuff for you as well um so yeah we'll see what they do with this funding from here but i thought it was an interesting one yeah, and they they uh, I, I had uh, the CEO on my podcast last December when he said, you know, we will be doing an IPO in 2022. Uh, and so this this got interjected in between uh, their plans for an IPO. Uh, and now he's saying 2023 for the IPO and, and there, there wasn't going to be another funding round. But I mean, I think he kind of uh, acknowledged uh, when I talked to him about this latest round that that uh, uh, the soft market uh, uh, was uh, was a reason for for them not deciding not to do the IPO right now, and that uh, with this further uh, recapitalization, that they can kind of get themselves into a super strong position for the IPO in 2023. So, uh, it, it, interesting that they they a little bit I think changed their their strategy on that. Um, all right. Anything else on that? Uh, I, I'll, I'll talk about a, a story. I did a, a couple of things uh, that came out of uh, AAAL, including I did post a podcast uh, interview with the uh, the new president, uh, and I uh, uh, hope you check that out. But I, one, one story I thought was actually kind of really kind of a little bit offbeat and interesting this week was this study finding that judges are influenced by write-ups of cases on Wikipedia. Uh, and uh, I mean, interestingly, this was done by a team of scientists from uh, the uh, MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, uh, as well as uh, from Maynooth University in Ireland. Uh, and uh, essentially, they found they found two different things. One is that uh, if uh, if there is an article about a case on Wikipedia, then that case is more likely to be cited by judges than cases for which there is no article. Uh, and uh, also that uh, 
when there is a corresponding Wikipedia article about a case, the way judges describe it tends to sound a whole lot like the Wikipedia article. Um, and uh, they did find that this is more likely to happen in lower courts and not in appellate courts, uh, and particularly in lower courts with heavier caseloads or busier judges. And so, you know, I guess the kind of one of the, the kind of the takeaway here is that uh, yes, judges take shortcuts too, <laughs> like we all do. Uh, and uh, you know, rather than uh, dive into Westlaw or, or LexisNexis uh, and and get the full, uh, you know, create their own analysis of a case, they're relying on on Wikipedia. Uh, I mean, the authors say this also maybe raises some public policy concerns because. Uh, do we really want judges uh, relying on Wikipedia? And, and what do we know about who's writing these case summaries? I mean, in this particular case, they had uh, um, law students write up the, uh, they, they actually created a series of write-ups about cases just for the purpose of this experiment and, and posted them to Wikipedia. Uh, but, you know, they say really this kind of maybe points to the need for a a, a reliable or a, or a, a, a recognized public access source uh, of information about cases that the judges can turn to. They specifically uh, mention uh, the uh, 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 the uh, what's the Supreme I'm blanking on the name OEA the OEA project uh, on the Supreme Court uh, and also Justia uh, which. Uh, uh, full disclosure is the host of my uh, my blog, uh, but uh, as, as examples of, of uh, uh, you know kind of uh, reliable sources, uh, authoritative sources, the word they use of, of uh, case law reports. Uh, but uh, I thought that was really interesting, and uh, who knows whether anything will ever come of it. And I should say it was Irish courts that they studied, but they said it probably holds true for any common law jurisdiction. Well, Bob, wouldn't you also say that Thompson or the West brothers invented that? That's what that's how West Law started. They were writing summaries of cases. And that's that that's the national reporter system because it is also full of synopses and headnotes explaining the case. So I'm not sure it's all that novel, although it is not free. But on the other hand, the other thing I've heard about is it not more likely to be, I'm playing the devil's advocate here that the lawyers are the lazy ones going to Wikipedia, summarizing the cases, and then the judges lift text out of briefs and put it into their opinions. That is the process I have always heard people refer to. So anybody want to argue about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that could, I think that could be. I mean, I think the difference uh, between, you know, John West uh, writing case summaries 150 years ago or whatever it was, uh, and now is is the point they're trying to make is you don't know who's writing these case summaries. There, there's it could be somebody who doesn't know anything, you know, with no legal training whatsoever. Uh, you know, right. obviously, Wikipedia has an editing process and, and a review process. Uh, but you wonder how many how often case summaries written on Wikipedia are getting reviewed through the <laughs> whole, uh, uh, you know, process. Write something but, about I Elon mean, Musk. It'll get it'll get uh, edited. But all right. Aren't there federal rules? I mean, I thought there were there were rules against citing Wikipedia, and obviously it's not being cited. We're just assuming it's being checked. So don't we have to invade judges' privacy and, and do keyboard strokes and find out if they're actually going to Wikipedia in the process of writing their opinions? 
Well, if they're so, going to do that to the rest of us, why should we do that to them? <laughs> exactly. Good point. Let's stop judges at the border. <laughs> at the border. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually had an argument with someone one time where uh, they did their Wikipedia. They, they, they Wikipedia one of my one, one like a case I wrote about back when I was at, at ALM actually, uh, and and they were like, oh you know this is disinformation because, um you know it, it, it was like a line I think it was like like the the, the lime wire litigation and like the recording industry of America was asking for like ridiculous damages based on like num like like a certain amount per download which was like ridiculous, uh, and so someone was like oh that's that that's impossible that that there's no way they could have they could they could have they could have uh, asked for that you know there's articles full of disinformation blah blah then I. I I I I I had to, I had to like email the guy and be like, no, this is this is this is the court paper. This is the this is the argument. This is where where I got it from, and 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 that's that that's how it came about. So then they they finally corrected it, but it's but then it made me think like, yeah, how many other how many other cases where they were like, oh, that can't be, and 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 then they just like they just like kind of like try to try to figure it out for themselves what it said without really checking it or having any kind of stringent review process. Yeah, Mark, Mark Lauritsen asked in the chat about will litigators start hiring folks to write edit Wikipedia articles on relevant cases? I have to wonder whether they're not already doing that myself. I mean, we, we've already we already know law firms are going on to social media and, you know, trying to, inf you know, trying to influence at least public opinion about cases uh, in 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 posting about cases they're involved in. Um, and, uh, you know, why not Wikipedia? I don't know. And marketers do that with Wikipedia for their business clients, right? They go in and they try to submit like this glowing description of whatever the company or the lawyer or the whoever does. So I, I, I'd been thinking about that, but it didn't even occur to me that lit, you know, litigators would hire folks to write stuff. That's a really interesting variation of that concept. So maybe they will. I mean, that's a really interesting idea. Maybe they already are. <laughs> it wouldn't shock me either. And it's also like, as somebody who was in college when Wikipedia was really coming up and being start like starting to be outlawed as a source for things, it is very easy to just take a piece of text from Wikipedia, Google it. There's inevitably some like act like college website or academic website or something else that is also copied from Wikipedia, but is hosting it on a .edu address and just say, oh, I'm going to cite that instead. So I'm not really citing Wikipedia. I'm citing the University of Houston, which also pasted from Wikipedia. Um, so it, there are ways around pretty much everything. And if you are, say, a judge who wants to be citing a case, there's probably somebody else or wherever Wikipedia took it from that you're probably going to be citing instead. Back on the point about litigators writing for Wikipedia, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, most of those people are, well, not all of them, many of them are paid by the hour and you can't build a write on Wikipedia. So what are they going to do? They're going to give it to somebody in the marketing department to write up a blurb to go on Wikipedia about a case. Then a judge is going to pick that up and run with it, whether it may be right, wrong or indifferent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it's actually not sort of not all that easy to just kind of post stuff to Wikipedia. I mean, it, you, you do have to, you have to get sort of accepted as an editor or, or poster, I forget what the roles are and, and uh, go through some kind of a, a review process and the posts get reviewed. So th there certainly are quality controls. And I think that's one of the things that Wikipedia prides itself on. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's really more a question of how much, how how accurate uh, those kinds of editorial controls can be when you're talking about describing uh, describing cases.
I have a funny cool. Wikipedia aside. My I have a post that I wrote about Law 360 um, years ago, and it is cited in a in a Wikipedia uh, write up about Law 360. They they have a footnote to my post, and I went and I looked at it recently, and I was heartbroken. My post is flagged as suspicious content. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so it's not that easy. You may get posted, but you may not get cred. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, one, one other thing I thought I'd talk about, just another takeaway from the AAO, was that that the, just a, a quick note on it, but I, I wrote about it. This, the, the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, who uh, happened to be the keynote speaker uh, and uh, gave, a, gave a, a good sort of a, a brief talk, a general talk, as, as her opening and then went sat through a, a, a sort of a Q&A uh, chat conversation with the uh, outgoing president of AAAL uh, and then had a question and answer session. In the question and answer session, I happened to ask her about uh, the kind of the, the fact that uh, regulatory reforms in California have appear to be stalled. It's something we've talked about a number of times here. Uh, you know, it, it, a couple of years ago, I think we all thought California might be First, out of the gate with uh, in, enacting a sandbox or, or uh, a paraprofessional program or something like that. There's been a, a study committee for a couple of a couple of different study committees for a couple of years looking at that issue and coming up with the recommendations. But uh, it, it's all been kind of shut down recently. And I, I asked her about that, and she, uh, it was, I thought it was interesting just because having been speak, speaking for an hour or so at that point, her tone just so so dramatically changed when I asked the question. Uh, and uh, uh, she seemed to become very defensive. I, I forget, it might have been Zach or Steve or somebody said to me, well, she just put her lawyer hat on there. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, she basically said, it's not our fault. Uh, I mean, and I, my question was, you know, the Supreme Courts of Illinois, I mean, of uh, Utah and Arizona have been leaders in bringing about these reforms. What what can the California Supreme Court be doing? And uh, she uh, basically turned around and blamed the legislature and for, for good cause. I mean, there is there is reason to do that, but she really shifted blame away from the Supreme Court. And uh, then apparently that later that same day announced her retirement from the court. So I hope it wasn't my article, but, you know, <laughs> Jean, Jean was talking about how she's influenced uh, Thomson Reuters a number of times. So I don't know. I hope I didn't get the Supreme Court justice to retire. <laughs> I wrote a little bit about it, too, Bob. And it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of a marked. Uh, and I sat there listening when you asked the question. And I remember listening to her response. And I, I remember thinking, it sure sounds like she's trying to pass the buck, whether whether it's legitimate or not. But boy, <laughs> no, we have no responsibility whatsoever. This is a damn legislature. After yeah. after spending you know almost the better part of an hour talking about we need to work together, we need to be cooperative and collegial and <laughs> yeah. collaborate. But those efforts at the legislature <laughs> and the lawyer lobbyists, a lot of guys talked about the yeah, lawyer right. lobbyists. Yeah. Yeah. If she ended up blaming it entirely. They they can lobby the legislature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, well, stay stay tuned for California developments, <laughs> or not. See, there's, there's a lot going on out of court. <laughs> there's a lot going on in California now, though, with their bar association and um, with that Real Housewives situation. Tom Girard Girardi, and there's like lots of scandals going on related to like him and his uh, Kate the lawsuits and the criminal cases against him and and i i th and 
you know, I wonder if just the fact that that's all just kind of imploding over there is may just have stalled a lot of other things um, too, because you need to have, even though you're talking to the Supreme Court and the legislature, you know, the bar associations have a lot to do with kind of moving those types of initiatives along. And there's just this sort of all over the place right now. I don't know if anyone's been following that. I, no, my, that's my, that's uh, part of the reason for why the, the state legislature, some legislators have said, you can't even police lawyers. How are you going to police paraprofessionals or, you know, alternative legal services providers? That's that's specifically they've talked about the Girardi case. OK, yeah, I mean, that I my guilty pleasure whenever I travel is I watch Real Housewives on the plane in the hotel room. Like, that's where I catch up on all the stuff. And so when that hit the fan, I just thought it was really interesting because I used to watch it. and I'd be like, how does he have that much money? I don't care how successful the PI attorney is. There's no way they've got that much money. Like she spent forty thousand dollars a month on like her makeup or something like just to make to look good. I'm like, there's no way. So I was not surprised when this whole thing imploded. And it just is having, you know, ramifications over there in California. It's been going on and on and on. And there's always a new headline that deals with the bar association or the prior bar association, not current, you know, people. But it was interesting. That's a cost of a facelift a month, not makeup. <laughs> right. I mean, it was ridiculous. She has a whole glam team. It follows her around and doesn't. I mean, it was ridiculous. But I'm like forty thousand dollars. I don't oh know a God. single lawyer that I've ever met that possibly has that much money from practicing law, right? Like I know some pretty successful lawyers. They can't fund that kind of thing legally. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Well, I think that does it for this week. I hope everybody will come back next week for our grand gala going away party for Zach Warren, uh, in which we're all going to drink lots of champagne and talk about the week's top stories in legal tech and innovation. Make it an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, better, actually, better. actually at the, the, the top story, the top story next week will be Zach. I know. Well, hopefully, hopefully there'll be some other news to talk about hopefully. next week. I want to go we'll out see. with my best giveaway from AALL. It's from Kaleidoscope. It's one of those things you put over your camera to hide, uh -huh. to turn off your camera. I love it. That's awesome. Good. All right. All right. All right. See you all Bye. next week. See ya. So Thanks for listening. Bye.